When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Today, I've got another fun author interview for you that should get you in the spirit. (laughs) His upcoming book takes place in an alternate universe of New Orleans where magic exists. Before we get into that convo, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Professional Book Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps to support our show. Make sure you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at ProBookNerds, and you can let us know your thoughts, suggestions, feelings, and more if you want by emailing us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. With all of that out of the way, let's get on to my conversation with Alex Jennings. My guest today is a writer, editor, teacher, and poet living in New Orleans. He was born in Germany, raised in Botswana, Tunisia, Suriname, and the U.S. He constantly devours pop culture and writes mostly jokes on Twitter. He loves music, film, comics, and even some TV. His debut novel, The Ballad of Perilous Graves, comes out June 21st from Orbit Books. It's Alex Jennings. Alex, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad you could be here today. Uh, to get us started, could you tell me a bit about your book? Uh, so at its heart, The Ballad of Perilous Graves is a sort of uh, exploitation pippy longstocking adventure um, that takes place in a version of New Orleans where music is a form of magic. And so nine songs of power have escaped from Professor Longhair's Enchanted Piano and manifested around the city as colorful street people. And my Pippi character and her friends have to uh, bring the songs home before the city falls apart. What kind of music inspired you while you were writing this book? Uh, Mainly the sort of traditional jazz that gets made in New Orleans. Um, Absolutely. Like the history of the art form was very important to me, like the way it emerged at Congo Square um, when the slaves were allowed to congregate and drum on Sundays and how that syncopated beat sort of metastasized into uh, a full worldwide art movement. Absolutely. Now, just the way you described that, what does music mean to you? What kind of part does music play in your life? Uh, Music is extremely important to me. Um, I'm just fascinated by the fact that it's a a human way of decorating time. And uh, there's an alchemy to it that really fires my imagination and helps take me where I'm trying to go. Um, I listen to music constantly when I write. Uh, 
mm-hmm. sometimes with lyrics, sometimes not. And uh, I listened to so much music writing this book. Like originally, the book was even more of a musical than it is now. And uh, I used a lot of popular songs, uh, especially for New Orleans. But, um, you know, you can't really do that. (laughs) (laughs) So so I had to go through and write all of my own uh, song lyrics. And that was really fun. I wasn't sure I was up to it, but I think it came out okay. That's really exciting. And I know it's got to be so tough knowing that like, oh, I can't just pluck this off the radio and go, there's one of the songs right there. Right. Was this your first time kind of like writing lyrics? I mean, not totally. I've written, I've written lyrics just for fun before. Um, but this was the first time I would draw a bead on a sensibility or a theme and, and go after that. It was, it was a, a really good time. It happened very quickly. It really sounds like it was a good time. Uh, since you said it happened quickly, how long did you spend writing the book? I think, oh, the book? Well, that took... <laughs> that was a little less quickly. <laughs> oh, about 10 years. 10 years, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, so the music part was the quick part. How long did that take you? <laughs> I mean, the music was pretty much instantaneous. Like writing the song lyrics, I spent maybe a week on that uh, once I knew I had to switch them out. And um, I only used one real song, uh, which was the St. James Infirmary Blues, because um, I just had to have it. But it's, it's a traditional song. It's a, it's a staple of New Orleans jazz. And it's actually uh, an old English folk ballad. Oh. Um, yeah, a lot of folks don't know that. I, I, I like to research the music that I enjoy, like not just Shazam it, but to <laughs> really dig into its origins and like the, the history of the musicians and all that stuff. Uh, it's like a, a kind of deep nerdery that I truly love. I, I appreciate anyone who will nerd out about their passion so if that's music I think that's even more fascinating because you have people to learn about you've got cultural influences to learn about since you can kind of like you can tell that you love to research as far as music goes do you did you do the same thing when you were writing to create your version of New Orleans yes I mean like the main research for that is just listening to people in town Mm -hmm. listening to the way they talk and what the what they talk about um one of the interesting things about people in new orleans is a we like to discuss what meal we're having next over our current meal and uh b we like to orient ourselves with landmarks whether they still exist or not and so ain't there no more is uh, (laughs) a big saying here (laughs) um I took a, a class when I was doing undergrad at uh, the University of New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, called the History of New Orleans Music from uh, Connie Atkinson. Oh. And like that opened up the history and sensibilities of New Orleans music for me mm-hmm. in, a, in a huge way. And it, it became vital to what the book became later. 
Now, since you are living in New Orleans, did you ever find yourself, like if you had a moment of block that you just walk out into the streets and like head toward where you were trying to write or did you ever try to put yourself in the location? I know, of course, it's not the same world, but do you ever find yourself exploring the city for that next yes. step? Okay. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, NOLA is a very real place for me. Mm-hmm. And there were many times, you know, usually the book felt like it was writing itself, but there yeah. were there, there were some stops in there uh, where I didn't know how to go forward. And I would spend a lot of time walking in the city, talking to people, looking at things and just sort of like trying to integrate myself into the fabric of New Orleans. Sure. And it would open doors for me that I didn't know were there. Um, you know... There were a couple people who were really instrumental in um, helping form the idea for this book. Uh, one is Victor Laval. Uh, Victor has been very nice to me over the years. Um, I first contacted him after I finished reading Big Machine and told him that it changed my life and like the way I I exist in my neighborhood, you know, because I, I moved around a lot as a kid. So it took a long time for New Orleans to feel like home. It took about seven years. Um, But that wasn't something that I I knew was possible for me um, because as far as I was concerned, home was wherever my family was. And I don't really have a lot of family here in town. Okay. But uh, this is my city Mm -hmm. uh, and the city speaks to me. And I, I love living here. This is my favorite place in the world. And you've been a lot of places in the world. What took you around the globe growing up? Uh, my dad worked for the State Department. And uh, so my family was stationed in a lot of places. Uh, before I was born, it was like uh, the Ivory Coast, Ethiopia. And uh, when I was born, my family was living in Botswana. And then wow. after that, we moved back to the States for a while and then to Suriname and then to Tunisia. So it it's makes like it's no surprise that it took a while for anywhere to feel like home because I, I can't imagine just the constant upheaval and to be separated from your family. Are they far? I mean, they're mostly pretty far. Like my mm-hmm. family is in the DC area, DC okay. and Maryland. Um, but I feel like they're with me all the time. I think the writing of this novel helped with that as well because it's very much inspired by my family. Like even though my family is not from New Orleans, I feel like the characters are infused with their spirits. And uh, my father in particular, mm-hmm. I, I think I had been writing for three or four years before I realized that like Perry was a version of what I imagined my father to be like at that age. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, like the way things went in the book, like that really scared me. Sure. And uh, I think I, I think I was blocked about it for about nine months before it just came roaring back to me and I was able to finish. I, I can really appreciate that. So do any of your other characters share big components with your family or do they all just like, do their different uh, character traits kind of flow through when you write? It varies. Okay. Um, like Peaches, for instance, is a composite of like every woman I've ever loved, including sure. my mother and my sister and all that. 
but Mama Lisa is my older sister, Lisa. Okay. <laughs> she's a she's a, a brilliant educator. She taught me to read when I was four years old. Oh, and wow. it seemed like a long time at the time, but I think it took maybe three weeks. And that's not because I think I'm that's pretty fast. <laughs> it is really fast. She is truly amazing. Like she just has this empathetic connection with students and she's mm-hmm. able to help them synthesize information at a high level and very quickly. And like, I'm like, she's just the best teacher I've ever met. What a gift. I'm so glad to hear that there are children in the world who are getting helped by a person who clearly cares so much. Oh, absolutely. Now, now was Lisa kind of your inspiration for reading or, or writing? Did she kind of, you know, of course she taught you, but did that translate immediately into being like a, a book nerd or wanting to create your own stories? I mean, I think I mainly started with comic books, but I was composing mm-hmm. my own stories before I was making memories, I think. Sure. Um, you know, I would, I would make these movies in my head before I learned to write. And uh, once she taught me to read and write, I was able to like set them down on paper. And so I wouldn't have to just obsessively rewind everything and remember where I was before. <laughs> Absolutely. You are the second person I've talked to now who described um, the stories in their head being like a movie. Uh, I was I was talking with a Quake Amizi and they were saying that um, that they don't have the internal dialogue that a lot of people have, the, the kind of like narrator voice in their head. It just is, mo- they see movie scenes and then had to translate that over. So it was, uh, I appreciate hearing that from, from someone else as well. <laughs> Absolutely, it, it kind of, it kind of works both ways for me. Like mm-hmm. I will often see and, and experience scenes very visually, um, but sometimes I'll, I'll hear voices. Sure. I know uh, Octavia Butler used to, used to get her stories auditorily and then fill in the rest of the, in, uh, um, the sensory information. Right. Um, anyway, she was a, a major influence on me. Uh, in a lot of ways. So um, we've talked kind of about your process of always having music playing, but what is your the rest of your writing process like? When did you start writing? And then how do you kind of like still write today? I started writing when I was about four. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my process has changed a lot over time in that one of the main staples of it is to devour as much pop culture as I can, like all the imagery that I can, Absolutely. Uh, written work, stories. And then I sort of automatically cherry pick tropes, characters, images, and concepts from those things mm-hmm. and recontextualize them in my own way uh, to make something new. And I, I sort of think of it the way Um, hip-hop producers operate and make beats absolutely Uh, you know just taking little snippets of things and and changing them around Uh, that's kind of how peaches was born uh, because i moved to new orleans in 2006 and there were a lot of stories about kids having to come back to the city without their parents 
Sure. Um, and fend for themselves. And so that immediately made me think of uh, the Pippi Longstocking books and what uh, Pippi would be like if she was from Central City. Sure. And uh, the rest of the story grew out of that. Wow. What a great way to get inspiration, just kind of absorb the world around you and, and, and share your point of view. Now, you also write poetry. Do you ever find that your style of poetry bleeds into your prose storytelling? I mean, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, poetry is still pretty mysterious to me. Um, sure. it, still, it still amazes me that people are interested in reading the poetry that I write. I never thought that was something that would happen. Oh. But um, I tend to compose verse very quickly and then I'll try to come back and uh, revise it after I've sort of forgotten about it. And uh, that, that works to varying degrees of success. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, kind of a, I'm kind of a wordy writer. I include a lot of details. So poetry helps me draw a bead on specific moments and emotions mm-hmm. and images. And um, my poetry is usually pretty brief. Like I, I don't usually write more than 40 lines of verse. Okay. Um, but I did, <laughs> I did write a 57 line poem this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> so not always, but most times. <laughs> now to step back to characters for a minute, of course, I love the way that you've described creating characters, but do you have a favorite character or even one you just relate to most in The Ballad of Perilous Graves? Casey is a really big one for me. Like he's, he's based on people in my family and like there's just something about the way he came up and his attachment to the city mm-hmm. and like being a transplant, but his love for New Orleans being true and, and pure Sure. Um, so he's definitely a favorite of mine, but if I had to pick one, I'd say probably Brindy. Okay. You, cr- you've created so many characters in this book and like, it's the characters I think play, of course, New Orleans is a character itself, but characters play such a part to tell the story. Did you make like a conscious choice to go character heavy route? I very much believe that story is expressed through character. Mm -hmm. And so in order to tell what I hope to be a satisfying story about New Orleans and its spirit, um, I needed to capture a lot of facets of the city. And so I needed a lot of characters to express that story. And, uh, you know, plus, like, I'm, I'm thinking of my family all the time. And one of the things that I love most about being here in the city is the people and the way they interact, the way they speak. And uh, so highlighting that made it necessary to do a lot of character work. It's also important to interact with people here in a way that it isn't necessarily in other cities. Like here, like you speak to everyone you see on the street and not only is it a fun way to like connect with the city and its people, but it will literally save your life. If you can make yourself a person rather than a mark <laughs> or someone who has no manners, <laughs> it goes a long way. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Sponsor. 
finding and booking a doctor who's right for you doesn't need to be a terrible experience. Will they take your insurance, understand your needs, or be available when you can see them? With ZocDoc, the answer can be a refreshingly pain-free yes. Going to the dentist is already painful enough for me. Adding the conundrum and stress of scheduling an appointment just really makes me not want to go even more. But honestly, ZocDoc helped make this process pain-free for me, Novocaine aside. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. Read up on local doctors, get verified patient reviews, and see what other real humans had to say about their visit. So when you walk into that doctor's office, you're set up to see someone in your network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com, choose a time slot, and whether you want to see the doctor in person or do a video visit. Just like that, you're booked. Find the doctor that's right for you and book an appointment that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I'm one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find and book a doctor. In the chaotic world of healthcare, let ZocDoc be your trusted guide to find a quality doctor in a way that's surprisingly pain-free. With ZocDoc, you can get your docs in a row. Go to ZocDoc dot com slash pro book nerds and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash pro book nerds. ZocDoc dot com slash pro book nerds. Now, fantasy world building is a beast in its own right. What were some of the things you had to consider when you were creating NOLA? Well, one of the things that I most had to consider was making sure that I'm not trying to take something away from the people who are born and raised in the city. Like this is Mm -hmm. supposed to be more of a tribute to them and to the city. Sure. And there's sort of a, there's sort of a culture war going on in New Orleans uh, in the past like decade or so, where a lot of people are moving in and trying to reshape the city in the image of wherever they came from. So you'll have people like move in next to a bar that's had live music for a hundred years and start calling the cops and making noise complaints. And because of it, the, the city kind of feels like it's under attack and like sure. it's, uh, its soul is at stake. So I wanted to make it clear that I am not trying to reshape New Orleans in my own image, that I'm not, um, that I'm not trying to prescribe like a way forward. And I'm also not trying to capitalize on the trauma that the storms have brought. Um, because, you know, when I first moved down here, it was the summer of 2006, the city was still very much affected by Katrina. Um, What a lot of people don't know or remember is that the affected area was the size of Great Britain. So it wasn't just New Orleans, it was all the way through the region. And like the the salt water had choked a lot of the trees and it was just, it looks almost like an alternate universe version of New Orleans where Macbeth style someone had taken over and uh, the region rebelled. I mean, that's such a thing to think on. I, I was aware of like the the scale of the damage, but right, even just looking at how plant life, how just people had to respond to that. 
it definitely doesn't feel like you're doing any sort of exploitation in the sense of being a transplant and reshaping though or even just like looking at the disaster like you said yes peaches is kind of birthed from kids coming back to the city without parents but that's you know you know that's just like a a a drop of the story there um but the the thing that really captivated me is you know music is the lifeblood that's the through line um and the story really taking off as the great magician starts appearing in odd places the songs of power has escaped and the magical piano you know is is still like trying to maintain the city's beat but it can't now that the songs have gone and it it really makes i can see it now once you said um the people who moved in and started calling the cops on bars like you need to know where you moved not the other way around you can't all of a sudden be noise complaining when this is what's been happening for uh, longer than most of us have been around right and i mean one of the reasons why the music here is so vibrant and so completely integrated into the life of the city is that people practice at home at odd hours so it's not unusual to hear somebody blowing a trumpet as you pass by a house and like that's what makes our celebrations so deep and so grand and you know if if you enjoy the marching bands if you love dancing to the music during mardi gras like those people have to practice (laughs) right it it never i was a marching band kid in high school it it never stops you got to practice all the time i love the idea of being able to walk down the street and you're hearing someone get ready for the club at you know the the nightclub at one place the jazz bar at the other place you're you're getting a preview of what you're looking forward to it it is something to celebrate because it's it's all around you it really is and and it's always so beautiful to hear and see these kids receive uh their sort of inheritance of the music of new orleans and like they keep it tight, man. Like they drill those kids for the marching bands, and like they uh, they practice right outside my window. I just moved to Mid City from Central City, and like you know, you'll see people practicing for parades, marching up and down Toulouse Street, and I just I love it. I'm I am so jealous. I love that. I what a what a treat. Like you said, they're they're getting their inheritance from the city. Right. And if you told me 20 years ago that marching band music would be one of my favorite (laughs) kinds of music, I would have never believed it. Now, you mentioned you've been writing Perilous Graves for a little over 10 years. What was it like to wrap a project like this that you've been working on for so much of your life? Oh, it always feels really crazy to wrap a book. Like it's... Mm -hmm. It's just just this surge of emotion that... uh, just it's over it overcomes you sure and like there's a lightness to it and a fullness to it and a Mm -hmm. sense of achievement it's it's just it's one of the best feelings and uh i had it over and over again with this book you know like one of the things people warned me about is like you're going to be revising the book so much that you're going to come to hate it and it's going to it's going to be terrible to dive into it every time and thankfully that never happened to me. Like every time I would go back to the book, I felt the same kind of love and excitement that I did at the very beginning. 
And I really hope that comes through for readers. You can tell when someone put joy into what they worked on and, and it's, it's absolutely there. Can we expect more in this universe? Have you given any thought to a, a sequel or a companion or? Well, I don't think there's going to be a direct sequel. Mm-hmm. but I will definitely be returning to the world more than once. Um, okay. I, I probably won't do that for my next book, mm-hmm. but I, I will be back to NOLA for sure. Oh, well, that's very exciting. But speaking of your, of your next works, what are you, any, any hints of what you're working on now or any feelings? Well, I, I spent all of my high school years in Tunis, Tunisia and the culture, the history, and the spirit of that city are very much alive to me, similar to the way New Orleans is alive to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'd really like to explore that and kind of what it was like to live as a sort of privileged class there mm-hmm. and like the colonial aspects and what that means these days and how we influence the culture and politics of wherever there's an American presence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm looking at that. I, I took French in high school and we did a, a section on Tunisia and I'm trying to think is the, am I thinking right? Open air markets, like beautiful sprawling markets. Yeah. There's a, there's a souk. There's the old city. A souk, that's it's it. Like, it's a, it's a maze uh, with all these market stalls and it's just mm-hmm. beautiful. And you go down there and haggle and it's it's just wonderful. Well, uh, with with the thought of the souk in mind, I am super excited to see how you translate your style into if there's a if there's a scene of that, you know, my heart will just explode. I love the idea of your take on a on a bustling bustling market haggling going on in the background. Absolutely. One last thing about Perilous Graves before I just go into some of my nosy questions. Uh, the cover of this book, it is striking. It is beautiful were you a part of the design process okay they asked me for some ideas okay (laughs) and i was i was very gratified by that i gave them a couple ideas and then the cover has nothing to do with any of them (laughs) and like usually you'd be taken aback by that but when i saw when i saw the cover art Uh like my skull felt hot like it's so beautiful and i could just see Mm-hmm. the books stacked up in yep. Barnes and Noble or some or at a library absolutely and I was absolutely in love like that that cover art is brilliant that's one of the things that's been the most illuminating and gratifying about the process of making this book mm-hmm. to see how many people contribute to it and sure. how they can take my ideas and turn them into something else that's just amazing like that idea of uh, skeletal hands playing a piano that's also a headstone for a grave. Like I never would have thought of that. I'm not a visual artist mm-hmm. and it just, it's brilliant. It's perfect to me. Absolutely brilliant. Now, speaking of the process, I, I guess not the last question about the book. <laughs> um, any plans on an audiobook? Have there been conversations around that? Uh, I believe the audiobook was recorded last week. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Timely. <laughs> and uh, I got a lot of input on that. I helped them find 
a musician for it and uh, they let me listen to the audition files and uh, choose who I thought was doing the best job with the story. And um, they wound up hiring an actor named Graylin Brooks, okay. who is uh, from right here in New Orleans. And um, the pianist is Josh Anderson, I believe. Okay. And they're just fantastic. Like, I can't wait to hear the finished product. It, it, seems, it seems like it's truly wonderful. That is so exciting. And I'm, I'm glad we could kind of wrap on the Ballad of Perilous Graves with the audiobook mentioned because while we're recording in May, this will be coming out in June, kind of right in time with the book's release and June is audiobook month. So super excited to hear that there is an exciting uh, version, an audio version of this coming as well that incorporates the music, that incorporates, you know, kind of the, the beautiful spirit uh, all throughout. Now for some questions from me, just as a nosy podcaster, uh, what are you currently reading? Okay, I am currently reading several books. Uh, the Ghost Sequences by uh, A.C. Wise is the one that I'm reading right now. Okay. Um, I've, had, I've had that book ever since it came out, and I haven't had a chance to crack it yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I just finished reading uh, the Last Suspicious Holdout by Lady Hubbard, who okay. is another person who has just been so kind and supportive um, in the in the run up to getting Perilous Graves out. And her, she she lives here in New Orleans, mm -hmm. and her understanding of the city and its people and the pulse of its life is is pretty unparalleled. Like. This book is the first time I've seen a lot of her stories set here in New Orleans. Like usually oh. they're set in other cities, but it's, it's just wonderful. Um, I've also been reading The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You by Maurice Ruffin. Okay. And that book is brilliant. It's mostly short, short stories. And it's all set in New Orleans. Maurice is from New Orleans, born and raised. And he just, he understands the city on a spiritual level in a mm -hmm. way that like just a lot of folks don't. You're a dog lover. Please feel free to take a, take a moment to gush about your baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I got my dog karate uh, during like kind of the worst part of the pandemic. Sure. Um, you know, feeling cut off from everybody and so distanced, like emotionally and physically mm -hmm. was just, taking a serious toll it made me feel like I was buried alive and so my roommate and I my roommate happens to be my best friend um we decided that we would start looking for a dog and uh, I wanted something kind of small because my apartment was pretty small mm -hmm. um and like when we went and saw karate he was just at the very edge of how big I wanted a dog to be sure um but I also didn't care because <laughs> as soon as they let me walk him, like I knew that he was my dog. Like I fell in love with him immediately. He's a, he's a boxer Sharpe. He's very beautiful. And uh, even though his hair is short, he has found a way to shed to a degree <laughs> that just amazes me. I'm astonished every time I clean it up. Now you mentioned your love of comics. What's your go-to series? Well, I'm, I'm behind right now. Mm -hmm. but what's been going on in the X-Men comics since Jonathan Hickman took over is like the most exciting stuff I've seen since the Grant Morrison era. Okay. And there's also 
this tinge of Afrofuturism to it. Um, Cause you know, like often the mutants are used as a metaphor for queerness of some mm-hmm. kind. And like the race metaphor is also there, but it's not usually in the, in the foreground the way right. it has been lately. And just seeing the way the X-Men and their villains have come together to create this, this space for them so that people will stop killing their children in the street. That really Absolutely. resonates with me. That is probably what I love most about the X-Men comics is, as a queer person, just the ability to see yourself represented in a way of like, yeah, this is this is part of just what I can never explain to someone who doesn't understand of what's scary. And I appreciate what they're doing right now because it also helps me understand the other, you know, the other part of the, the of the coin of people I can't understand who feel the same way you know i'm as a as a white person i can i can have empathy i can appreciate but i can never you know put myself in those shoes but it's so helpful to see it represented that way yeah and like the concept of intersectionality is so important Mm -hmm. to those comics and to absolutely our real world political lives because you have you have queer mutants you have Mm -hmm. mutants of color like it's just and I like the way they draw a bead and examine those nuances of character and oppression and uh, power. It's just, it really hits home with me. I first started reading X-Men comics after my sister taught me to read when I was four years old. And you know, like the, the first issue that I read was the one where um, Cyclops has moved to Alaska with Madeline Pryor and they have their baby. <laughs> Yep. And he's he's kind of convinced that she's Jean come back from the dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was the issue where she finally uses her power to hold back his eye beams when he takes his glasses off. Yes. And like I was four years old and I'm like, man, these big people are doing a lot of stuff I don't understand, <laughs> but I feel it. Yep. I feel and I was hooked from there. And now uh, are you binge watching anything right now? Uh, you know, a lot of my stuff is gone for the season. Mm-hmm. I, I've been watching uh, Snowfall. Okay. And like ever since Walter Mosley started writing on that show, it has transcended its origins to become just one of the greatest works of crime fiction I've ever seen. Uh his adaptation of his book, uh, The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, was mm-hmm. also truly amazing. Um, I started watching The Shining Girls, and I don't know exactly how I feel about that quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see. Last last one, what's your go-to delivery order? You don't want to leave the house. You don't want to cook. What are uh, you ordering? I, there are two, really, that I kind okay. of alternate between in a pinch. Um, I like to get lingua tacos from a from a place called Tacos and Beer um, mm. that's by my old house uptown. Um, but I also really like to get banh mi from this place called Banh Mi Boys. Okay. Um, I like to get their combination with like the head cheese and everything. And uh, down here we do banh mi a little bit differently. Like we we do rice flour French bread for them. Oh, okay. And, uh, the best ones are made by this bakery called Dong Fong, like way out on the east side. And uh, it's just 
perfect. It's delicious. They also make, uh, for my money, some of the best king cakes for king cake season. Thank you for indulging me that. I do get to travel for work here and there. So I'm just just slowly taking notes. Now the listeners know why I always ask everyone, hmm, what restaurants do you go to? <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like our listeners today to take away from the Ballad of Perilous Graves? Wow, that's a really good question. I think what I hope people take away from it is an inclusive fantasy where anything is possible. I hope that it makes people feel like they stand taller Mm -hmm. and feel like they're capable of more uh, than they were before they read the book. Listeners, you know what you're in for, but Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and introduce everyone to your book. Thank you so much, Joe. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Listeners, you can find The Ballad of Perilous Graves on June 21st. And uh, of course, everyone, enjoy your time today and happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.